Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. It's my favorite part of the program. Uh, Good evening and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know. I'm Fred Blackwell, CEO of the San Francisco Foundation and the chair for tonight's program. This program is part of the Foundation series on people, place, and power, addressing access and equity in the Bay Area. It's supported by the Foundation's Bay Area Leads Fund. Today's program is entitled One Paycheck Away, Addressing Homelessness in the Bay Area. Uh, Every night, more than 130,000 people go to sleep homeless in California. An estimated 25,000 of them are in the San Francisco Bay Area. These are folks that are sleeping on couches, sometimes in cars, and I think many of them have seen uh, tents and sidewalks. At this point, people from coast to coast know that the Bay Area is in the midst of a housing crisis. What are we in the region doing to address affordable housing and homelessness? Tonight, you will hear from some of the Bay Area's leading experts on issues surrounding homelessness, from folks working on legal services to services for folks who are homeless, policy advocates, funders. Our speakers will address the state of the crisis, how we got here, and what some of the solutions are and where we're headed. It's now my pleasure to introduce the panelists. I will start first with the empty seat, who will be here soon. Her name is Anita Deasis Morali. She's known as Nita B. or the Lumpia Lady. She's co-founder and lead organizer of Feed the People in the Village in Oakland, a grassroots volunteer collective which has been building tiny homes, providing services, and advocating on behalf of Oakland's homeless communities since 2016. Nita currently serves as program director for the Meikle Johns Civil Liberties Institute while running her 30-year-old catering company on the side. Despite being securely employed, the Bay Area housing crisis has impacted Nita directly. She and her daughter have been homeless since being evicted from their home one year ago. To the right there is Angela Jenkins, who is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Kaiser Permanente. She's worked in the community for over 18 years, serving as a field representative for former Assemblywoman Helen Thompson, a case manager for teen parents, a counselor in a women's correctional facility, and as a representative for a county supervisor. Uh, Angela has an MS in public policy, uh, administration, and a BS in justice studies. To her right is Tamika Moss, who is the chief executive officer of Hamilton Families. For more than 20 years, she has been a social worker and activist, working for social justice and economic equality in communities throughout the country. Uh, Tamika most recently has been chief of staff for Mayor Libby Schaff, but has also served for the mayor in San Francisco. Uh, she previously served as executive director of Hope SF, uh, an initiative addressing public housing revitalization here in San Francisco. She has been Spurs community planning director and is the founding project director of the San Francisco Community Justice Center of the Superior Court of California. Tamika holds a master's degree in public administration from Golden Gate University. To her right, Tyrion Steinbach has been executive director of the East Bay Community Law Center for the past 12 years, and this year joins the ACLU of Northern California as chief program officer. Prior to becoming executive director of East Bay Community Law Center, Tyrion served as a staff attorney and as director of clinics for the programs for six years. Under her direction, the center has become one of the most highly regarded community law clinics in the nation. She is also a lecturer in residence at UC Berkeley School of Law, or BOLT, from where she holds a JD degree. And finally, our moderator, Mina Kim, probably needs not much of an introduction, is KQED's news evening anchor in the Friday host of Forum. Mina started her career in public radio as an intern at KQED, becoming the general assignment reporter, then health reporter of the California Report. Her work has been recognized by the Radio, Television, Digital News Association, the Society of Professional Journalists, and the Asian American Journalists Association. Let me welcome the panelists, and I'll turn it over to Mina. Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Fred, for the introduction. I can't help, as I reflect on it, 
thinking about the number 25,000 here in the Bay Area who are currently unhoused, which I would bet is an undercount, probably. Um, but this storm, I think, is such a stark reminder, the wind, the rain of what it means to be unhoused and the perils of that. And then another reminder is just in this last month, we've had the point-in-time counts where volunteers have fanned out in cities, and they've tried to count how many people are sleeping in the streets, um, you know, at on just one night so that they can submit that number and get federal support. And my understanding is two years ago when we did that count, there was a surprising overall increase. I think San Francisco may have been an outlier and that the number was relatively stable, but that in Alameda County, there was nearly a 40% jump in the number of people that they counted in 2017. This is a count that happens every two years. And so a significant jump. And then the expectation is that when these numbers are tabulated and the results come out in the summer, that there could be a jump again, that the number could increase. And so I want to start by asking our panelists to characterize the state of the homelessness crisis. And we are in San Francisco, so I'm going to start with you, Tamika Moss, since you're based in San Francisco with Hamilton Families. How would you characterize where we're at right now in terms of the homelessness crisis? Well, I guess I would start by saying... um I would I would characterize the crisis as an ongoing challenge that jurisdictions across this region have dealt with for a really long time and it feels much more acute because of the increase that we see certainly in Alameda County but I want to just call out the fact that we have had unsheltered folks living in on our streets and struggling for a really long time. And there are many folks who've been working on this issue for a really long time. So I want to just start there so that folks don't rec- don't feel like this is brand new. There is an escalation of income inequality, wealth inequality that has a direct correlation to many more folks experiencing homelessness. So when we think about homelessness in San Francisco, it's been a challenge for this city for a really long time. And part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that San Francisco and the Bay Area has underproduced housing uh, for a very long time. And so when you have uh, pressure on the housing market for more and more people to be able to have housing that they can actually afford, then the crisis is exactly so I think it is, there's a combination of things that I think are contributing to the challenge. And one of the things that we think about is what are the systems that are perpetuating homelessness in our communities? And so we've, after the recession, Hamilton family saw a doubling of family homelessness in San Francisco. And um, what we discovered was there were probably 1,800 students in the district who were experiencing homelessness every night. That number has actually risen. It's now just over 2000. And we've already been working with the school district, with the city and county. We've already housed 400 families working in partnership with the school district and, and, and the city and our other philanthropic partners. So part of our challenge is that, that the info, the people who are exposed to housing insecurity and homelessness, uh, is faster than how, than, than the people that we can house. So for every one family that we house every month in San Francisco, 22 new families become homeless. So when you have that kind of disparity happening where the, inc- the the jobs that were added back to the economy after the recession, which many of our families, 50% of the families we serve at Hamilton are employed, those incomes are not sufficient in order to pay for all of the life expenses that people have. So we have a myriad of challenges that are that are sort of converging, I think, in this moment in time where the entire United States is experiencing um, this crisis. And I think it's really important for us to think about what are the systems that have perpetuated homelessness and housing insecurity, like failed housing policy, like structural racism, those pieces are fundamentally um, undergirding what is contributing to homelessness in our communities. And I think it's important for us to hold the space around the connections. One of the things that I'm struck by is you said that when you're housing people in San Francisco, how many of these families are you able to find housing for in San Francisco? That's a great question. So just about four years ago, before I joined Hamilton Families, uh, we were housing 80% of our families here in the city. Um, Now we house about 80% of our families outside of the city and county of San Francisco as far as Sacramento. And, And what's happening is people are having to make really hard choices about 
housing that they can afford, but then they leave their family connections. They, their, their children have to decide to leave their schools. And so how do we, um, mitigate the difficulty around making those choices in terms of finding affordable housing, but creating opportunities for those families to thrive where they are rehoused. And I think there's a lot of debate about, are we displacing homelessness? What we say to our, to the participants we work with is we're providing choices. I'm not willing to not provide a housing option for a family because it's not here in San Francisco. We want to provide housing options that are affordable and that that family can sustain wherever that housing might be. Now, Angela Jenkins, this question of trying to keep people in their communities, trying to preserve whole communities, that's something that you've been working on. Yeah, sure. Um, Kaiser Permanente, we announced a couple, about a month ago, uh, an impact investment fund of $200 million nationwide. It's really around um, a thriving communities fund. It's around uh, providing loans to address health issues, and we reserved $50 million for affordable housing. And to that point, I mean, we, we agree that people should have a choice in where they live. And the way the fund is designed is actually to preserve affordable housing in communities to prevent displacement from happening. So the fund is designed to um, allow, um, we're working with Enterprise Community Partners and Ebalsi to purchase existing units that are in communities that are on the verge of gentrification, where families are on the verge of, of being displaced, to do some rehab and have some health outcomes with those families. Because at Kaiser Permanente, we definitely believe that homelessness and um, housing instability impacts health. And so we, we feel that by keeping people in place and keeping people communities whole, it's important around community health. It's important for individual health. And our goal is really to do what we can to um, keep people stably housed and keep people in their communities, to do our best to keep communities whole. And I think Fred said this. I was watching something that you did last night in terms of um, we risk losing the things that we, the thing that we appreciate about the Bay Area the most is that it's our diversity. It's the fact that um, we we have people at all incomes of levels living together and it makes us who we are and it makes that's why people want to come here in the first place and so you know i think it's it is a difficult choice it's challenging i mean if i'm am i going to choose to not live in a, in a in a healthy community or go to a place where i feel like my family can thrive but i also if i've grown up in a particular community and have lived there for a, for a long time I feel like I should have be able to have a choice to find a, a healthy home where I can stay there and I can stay in place where I may have had a very deep history. Mm-hmm. And so that's what our goal is with that fund is to do what we can to, to keep pe- um, communities whole. And what are you finding works to keep people in Oakland, for example? It's not like that city is be, as significantly more affordable than San Francisco right. these days. I mean, I think purchasing the units and keeping people housed, but also I think it's not just the one, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach that we have to take. And I think it's it's getting people in, pe- keeping people in place. It's if, making affordable housing available. It's providing, it's, it's some of the other work that we've done when we've invested in the Keep Oakland Housed initiative, which is around providing people flexible subsidies um, who are at risk of eviction. Or What is a flexible subsidy? So flexible subsidy is is basically, it's a, it's a pool of funding that is flexible, that if any family needs um, access to resources, financial resources, to pay a PG&E bill that might be causing them some issues, or if they need to pay back rent, and if they're at risk of being evicted and they need to pay some back rent. It allows organizations, uh, East Bay Community Law Center, Catholic Charities, and Barrier Community Services is the collaborative that's managing that fund, and it allows them to access flexible resources depending on a family's need. Um, Homelessness and um, housing instability is is unique to individual circumstance, and there's not one solution that meets everybody's needs. And so having that flexible pool of funding is is really invaluable for them to be able to access those financial resources to keep them in place. And paired with legal support, I think, is where we really have deep impact. And do you want to add anything to what Tamika Moss was saying, which I think she laid out really nicely, this this question of what are the systems that are perpetuating homelessness? Mm-hmm. What would you add to that in terms of that's a good question. I think um, in some of the work that we've done, and as I'm learning about this um, issue, I think, you know, so I, I believe like we have um, communities that are at risk of uh, not being housed. And these, and I think of young people who are transitioning out of child welfare systems, right? If you're in foster care and you're transitioning mm-hmm. into the community, are you being, are, is there enough support for you to find stable housing once you come out of that system, particularly if you've been in there for most of your life? That's, that's a systemic issue that we need to address 
best to make sure that people have proper transitions out of, say, a child welfare system. If people have been formally incarcerated and they're coming out of incarceration, what supports exist um, before they are leaving incarceration to come home to find a stable place to live? Uh, it could be in, uh, the hospital system. If we're discharging patients into the community, um, there's new legislation around how we have to have a discharge plan to get people into some to get people to an address um, once they're discharged from our hospital, doing some work around those um, those needs. And I think um, that's critical where we have to look internal to our organizations to determine what we can do to ensure that people have proper transitions into housing. And I think it's really critical when you think of Oakland and um, some of the work we've done last year, Kaiser Permanente, we did some work around trying to identify solutions to house um, elders who have chronic conditions and health issues. And in that learning, we realize that many of the newly homeless are African-American men over the age of 50. It's increasing. And these are people who have lived right. in Oakland, have built Oakland, uh, Oakland, and now are at a point in time where they are struggling to find a place to live and struggling to find uh, to stay housed, whether it's they had, were living with a relative and the relative um, passed away and they no longer have that income to live in a house. So I think um, it's we, we really need to think about... Um, the pop, you know, the unique needs of the populations that we're serving, identify the systems that they're interacting with, and make sure that we have the systems in place to ensure that they get properly transitioned to good housing. I I want to talk with you a little more later just about that, the fact that the the challenges that are presented as the homeless population is graying. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tyrion Steinbach, I, I want to go to you just on this overarching question as well when we look at, because I'm sure you have a lot to say in terms of the systems that perpetuate homelessness. You uh, were with the East Bay Community Law Center for 17 years, 11 of those as the leader of that organization. And you really look, have, you know, you are steeped in the law. And I'm curious what you would say is the role of law, the role of lawyers in terms of addressing homelessness. Um, and that's that's a great question. And despite being a lawyer, I often think, what is the role of lawyers in helping <laughs> um, and being part of the solutions? Um, because I'm a, a cynical lawyer. But um, <laughs> well, because it feels like this is an arena. I mean, we'll hear from probably Nita B when she comes in that yeah. homeless, the criminalization of homelessness has been a big issue. Absolutely. And actually, stepping back, so I started at East Bay Community Law Center. Um, 17 years ago with a project which for a time was called the decriminalization of poverty practice. That's what it was. And my clients and everywhere I worked was homeless shelters and on the streets. Um, it was part, we literally would put legal uh paperwork, flyers, know your rights cards into a suitcase and do street outreach and shelter outreach. Mm -hmm. And so that was the work. And that was the work that started the Law Center 30 years ago. And so I really appreciated Tamika talking about this crisis has been a crisis for many people, for thousands of people for so long. And it's at an acute point, which I hope is a tipping point, a tipping point where we do something radically different. Um, a tipping point that is, in the Bay Area, really a crisis of our conscience about how we approach this, um, how we approach what we've seen for years and is a man-made mm-hmm. problem based on policies that have existed, policies around federal defunding of affordable housing at the same time subsidies for um, market rate housing has increased and for homeowners has increased and and has decreased for people who aren't can't afford that man-made because we had racial covenants legal barriers for people of color particularly black people latino people asian people native american people from purchasing homes in berkeley where i've lived my whole life so for 48 years even in my lifetime there were practices of restrictive covenants in berkeley there was a black line above which our family could not have bought housing um, if we don't look at the history and the legal history of how we got here, we won't do the transformation that is necessary. Um, I heard a historian, uh, Khalil Gibran Mohammed, say recently, truth is the predicate of transformation. 
we have to face the truth of how we got here. And the truth is not just that these were policies and practices that got us here, economic, housing, many of them to protect the the folks who had the resources and to keep other folks out, right? That we have laws that are still on our books that are to make it harder to build affordable housing in people's neighborhoods. Um, we need to face that truth. But we also have to tr- face the truth of the total uh, myths about homelessness, that homeless people in San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley and all over the Bay Area are not your friends and neighbors. They are. The vast majority are literally homeless in the neighborhoods they grew up in. That homeless people are just choosing this. I'm not homeless. I'm home full. It's wonderful out here. That is, it is not a choice for the vast majority of people. Of course they would like to be housed. And of course they would like to have help when they need it that they want to stay in the home in the neighborhood, their kids in the schools that they grew up in. These myths, we have to reconcile and reckon with the truth of how we got here in order to do what Fred Blackwell calls radical imagination, that we have to do something totally different. Mm-hmm. And, that, and part of what you asked about law is that for me, law is... When I'm cynical, law is just a problem and makes us fill out release forms and waivers. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's the lawyer's fault. <laughs> um, but at its heart, law is supposed to be the compact we have with each other to organize our society, to take care of ourselves and have rules and responsibilities. And this homeless crisis, crisis is a constitutional crisis. It is a crisis of human rights, right? Constitutional law is not happening in these marbled halls. It's happening right now in Oakland when people's properties are being taken away in violation of the 14th Amendment, when people are are being subject to cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of the Eighth Amendment. When people are being subjected to processes and not given notice as a violation of the 14th Amendment. These are, this is constitutional law happening right now. And if we believe in that document, we need to stand up and say, if this is happening right now with our friends and neighbors who are on the streets and in curbside communities and trying to form community, then we need to stop it. Well, and I'd like to welcome Nita B to our panel, who, uh, thanks for being here, uh, who, as Fred mentioned, you might recall, um, is the co-founder and lead organizer of Feed the People and the Village in Oakland, and also somebody who is experiencing homelessness with her daughter, um, and has been for about a year, is that right, since you were evicted? So tell us about your situation, Nita B, right now, if you could. Um. Our current situation, and I apologize for being late. We were having transportation problems. But um, our current situation is we're going between a camper and couch, couch surfing. Um, and this is the result of an illegal eviction, um, of an eviction of a place that was inhabitable, uninhabitable, but I'd rather be in an uninhabitable roof over my head than be on the streets. And so we were paying $1,000 a month for a quarter of a basement that flooded Every time it rained, every time someone used the laundry machine, every time the shower upstairs got turned on. And we lived there for four years, and we were paying $1,000 a month for this place. And then the landlady realized she could get 2000 for the space, and she did, actually. And so there's someone currently living there, but we got evicted in the process and um, attempted to uh, fight the eviction, not through the court system, because I don't believe in calling the police on anybody, including a slumlord. Um, and so we had a community mediation process and the community had our back and, um, held this woman accountable and she did not like how the community was trying to hold her accountable. So she started harassing us. Um, my daughter herself at the time this happened was 15 was getting death threats and rape threats because we wouldn't move. And so rather than continue to deal with an unhabitable situation, um, and harassment and danger to my daughter, we thought we'd try to figure it out, could not find a place to live. And that is why we're currently homeless because, um, even though we are, I am willingly employed, um, with a job and also a, a business that I've been running for almost 30 years, we can't afford, uh, Oakland cause it's no longer a working class city. Um, the housing market is out of control, absolutely out of control. 
And my story is very common. I'm not an anomaly. There's many people who are, who are, who find themselves in the streets of Oakland. And like you said, in the neighborhoods that they grew up in across the street or in the neighborhoods where they went to high school and middle school in. And this is a common, common story. And you were saying, Tyrion Steinbach, that, you know, the law can be applied in a way where it recognizes people's rights, homeless people's rights, civil rights generally. Do you think the law is moving in that direction? Have you seen examples in recent cases that lead you to believe that it might be? Because what are people to do if there there aren't enough shelter beds, there aren't enough places for people to go and be sheltered, and they're outside, what are they supposed to do? Well, and I will always say that law is never more than one small part of work that needs to be done, but also because of the unique power that lawyers hold and that the law does hold in our society, if lawyers and the law is not involved in efforts like addressing homelessness, addressing the criminalization of homelessness, addressing a housing crisis, then that's a problem too. So one of the um, the most kind of hopeful signs in the legal realm right now is a case last year, um, Martin v. Boise, which is a Ninth Circuit case, which for the first time in a long time really held that a city, if it does not have enough shelter beds, cannot criminalize people for doing what is absolutely necessary, like sleeping outdoors. Um, in our society, the things that I just to- I take for granted that I get to do in the privacy of my own home every day, you can imagine all those things. Some of them don't imagine right now, but <laughs> all, of, all of those we get to just do in the privacy of our home. And I asked my students in doing this work to imagine and think about what do I think of about home, that I feel safe or secure, that there's food there, there's a place that I can have privacy, all of those things, and then trying to create that living on the street. Well, this case, Martin v. Boise, really said we can't criminalize people for doing what they need to do when we are not able to give them shelter. And that was huge. Now, that's a new case. It's relatively untested, a recent situation in Oakland at the village, which Nita B. knows intimately. Um, there was a temporary stay granted by a um, Ninth Circuit Judge Gilliam here. Um, and then that, that, that stayed uh, the destruction of the village. Um, but that stay was then lifted on a very narrow decision, though, about the very, very, very narrow and specific facts. So as legal advocates, there's a lot of hope that we can absolutely push this Eighth Amendment argument around cruel and unusual punishment, that we can't, as a society, punish people for doing what we all need to do because you're unhoused. Um, so I think there's some hope. Well, Tamika Moss, you wanted to jump in here. Yeah, I, I was just going to add in, in the spirit of hopefulness um, that jurisdictions like San Francisco and other communities are really looking at right to counsel in eviction cases because, you know, most of the time when an eviction happens, um, the landlord or the property owner has attorneys and um, they go to court and 90% of the time uh, the folks who are being evicted aren't there. And so judgments are are waged against them, fees, uh, evictions, etc. And so I think it's really hopeful that some jurisdictions are really testing this in their own um, localities around right to counsel so that folks who actually are being evicted can can fight can raise up what's going on in their living experience and have protections because what happens is the families that we serve have these evictions on their records and then it makes it really right. difficult for them to qualify for subsidized housing in other areas and so I think it's one of those challenges that that people are starting to realize is fixable. Um, So that brings me a good deal of hope around that. Well, I also think what you are talking about is, it's interesting, we have this question here, right, that is asking what are the different pathways out of homelessness for people, but you're talking about preventing homelessness in the first place. And I think, Nita B, I want to ask you this question in terms of, you know, what would have been helpful to you so that you wouldn't have gotten into this position where you and your daughter are going between, you know, couches and campers and, and trying to 
have a roof over your head and shelter. Well, I think there's two paths to look at. One would be like a big picture path and one would be immediate. In the big picture, we need a paradigm shift in development. Um, The development that has been happening in Oakland since 2000, um, when gentrification was introduced to Oakland, is gentrification. It is a systematic displacement of the working class. We have, so which raids the market rate. It's allowed people like our former uh, landlord to feel like she actually can and did raise the rent for a place that she wasn't taken care of. Um, so there's that, trage- you know, that path. And then I think with the other path is, um, you know, that we actually, let me go back to that. We need specifically to be developing a housing, permanent housing for folks that is 30% below the market rate. That's who's homeless, the working class, like specifically the working class and below is who's homeless. Um, affordable housing is no longer affordable because it's not a, it's not a static figure. It's based on the market rate. So as the market rate goes up, so does affordable housing. So that's not something we can work with anymore. Um, we have to be very specific about what we're building. And I think specifically, you know, for our situation, um, to have more pla- uh, things in place for um, holding landlords accountable for what kind of dwellings that they are renting and keeping up with those dwellings, um, to have more legal support, right? Um, to have, and really at the end of the day, it always comes back, it's, it really is permanent housing. We need more permanent housing stock that people can afford. Um, that's the only thing that's going to stop this crisis, both the housing crisis and the homeless crisis, is permanent housing stock that the working class can afford. Yes, Tamika Moss. Yes, I just want <laughs> to shout you out for a moment. I couldn't agree more. I think part of the challenge is um, we have a housing market where it costs $600,000 per door to build one unit of housing. So when you talk about housing for 30% of the area median income and below, that is housing that is deeply subsidized. So that unit of housing costs the same amount as a market rate unit. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out how do we incentivize, hold accountable, uh, prioritize, raise up policies around that zero to 30% AMI, because in fact, that is where we are underproducing across the entire Bay Area. So I just want to amplify that point and, and help folks recognize that the cost of building housing in the Bay Area is cost prohibitive. And so we have to be much more creative. You talked, Tyrion, about a paradigm shift and like radical transformation. We can't build our way out of a housing crisis when we're paying $600,000 a door for a unit of housing. It's impossible. So we've got to be a lot more creative about how we do that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Well, I think these couple of questions could be for for you too, Tamika, to respond to. What role do you see for county and city government and the school district to work together to address systemic causes of homelessness? And we have another uh, audience member who wrote, I teach with the Jamestown Community Center's after-school program at Buena Vista Horace Mann School. The school opened a family shelter for unhoused students. Can this be replicated across San Francisco and how? So if you want to talk a little bit about the role the city needs to play and also because you are so you work so closely with the school districts. Yeah, I mean, I think the the part of the solution is looking at this from a public-private partnership model. Every Every stakeholder in our community has a role to play in figuring out solutions for homelessness in our communities. And we've been able to um, create a public-private partnership with the city and county of San Francisco, the school district, and private philanthropy. And it, it was called the Heading Home Initiative. And it was really designed to, there were 1,800 students in the district who were experiencing homeless, homelessness for more than two years. And the, socio, the, the psychological trauma on the family for extended experiences of homelessness is quite profound. And so the initiative was designed to try to get 800 of those families rapidly rehoused over five years. And that's what I referenced earlier around. We've housed 400 of those families. And what we started to do was do direct 
uh, work with the school district. So my staff worked with the social workers on site. We got direct referrals from the school district. So you didn't have to go through a system to get connected to services. A family would be identified at Horace Mann. Then our social workers would reach out to my case managers and we would be able to get that person intaked uh, within 36 hours. And so it really allowed for the, the connectivity of the work to be much more streamlined in this, in this partnership. And it's allowed us to really use our data and, and understand like what it is we're doing in, with respect to reducing the number of families who are experiencing homelessness. So I think public private partnerships can be replicated. We've got to figure out how do we pull in philanthropy, business, um, you know, our community leaders, our, our, our pastors, our faith-based leaders. There is a role for everyone, and I think if we can put together a set of assets across the continuum of need, then we have a much better shot at actually responding to what folks are experiencing um, when they experience homelessness. And when, and this also, in some ways, has to be replicated in the places where you are rehousing people as well. I mean, you're talking about counties as far away as Sacramento. I mean, Solano, absolutely, Contra Costa. Mm-hmm. So one of our strategies is uh, we've established a strategic partnerships model within our organization. So we've brought on staff to start working with jurisdictions around the count around the region that says, okay, folks are are now housed in your community. We want to ensure that they are not going to become homeless. And we want to provide resources to the folks who are in your community to ensure that they have opportunity to resolve their housing crisis. So it really is creating a partnership where we are bringing assets to the community. And then we look at what can we do to support the infrastructure that's already there. If there's community-based organizations providing services, do we provide additional resources for extra staff? How do we um, look at transportation access and, you know, youth development programs? So we're really looking more comprehensively about what does a family need to thrive and how do we create those opportunities in the jurisdictions where families are rehousing? Angela Jenkins, one of the things that you talked about earlier was the displacement of the men you say built Oakland, Mm -hmm. right? And that the population is getting older. Can you talk a little bit about how you're trying to support this population. I think we're starting to get some good examples of things that mm-hmm. are working, mm-hmm. could work, um, mm-hmm. if applied correctly, mm-hmm. could really be a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. But if you could just help us understand some of the things that you're seeing, because you've been directly working with, I think, seniors, right? Brailsley? Yeah, last year we, um, uh, Bernard Tyson, our, our CEO, um, as he was getting off the freeway, uh, 27th Street, um, there was an encampment there. Um, was just appalled about what he was seeing when he was coming um, coming into work every day. And he uh, challenged the organization to identify a way to work with our city and county and nonprofit providers to identify solutions for uh, addressing the needs of um, seniors, well, seniors that had some health conditions over the age of 50. And so as an organization, we came together, we worked with city and county partners to identify some solutions to do that. And some of what came out of it was funding the Keep Oakland Housed initiative. Um, some of the work we're doing internally is really around um, I, 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 um, funding some research to assess housing status of our members, because we know our members who are in that age bracket are, are at risk of becoming homeless. Um, but also what we were, um, what we did was we worked with county partners to, and city partners to identify um, an opportunity to work with an individual organization to quickly house 515 frail elders in the in this year, 2019. So we're in the midst of mm. negotiating that agreement 550, right now. 550. Five, 515 frail elders, um, elders who have a chronic condition, who are at risk, who are homeless, um, to identify housing for them along a continuum of need to the hope that we can get them in permanent supportive housing, which, you know, there's not a good availability of permanent supportive housing in the community. So we're actually testing this model for us in terms of um, identifying a singular partnership with an organization to get those individuals housed in within one year. And we're looking to see how that works to see if that's something that we could do in other, in other jurisdictions. And there was just a follow-up question for you about hospitalization, you mentioned 
This person wants to know what support, if any, is Kaiser currently providing discharged patients who do not have an address to go to following hospitalization? Sure. I mean, I think to that. Yeah, I think it's challenging for most medical settings because there's not enough uh, recuperative care and medical respite in the community. And so we what we do is our social workers are developing in compliance with the law, discharge a plan, assessing the need and identifying and working with them to identify an address where we could discharge those patients. And we discharge them into um, care centers. If, if it's available and where they need, depending on what the care plan that they have. And so um, we're working on that now. There's a new law that all hospitals have to do that and assessing uh, what are the community health opportunities that we're learning about as we're implementing that law. And uh, so that's currently what our practice is. And um, I think from the community health perspective that we have, it's understanding what it is that we can do um, to help build capacity in the community around providing medical respite and recuperative care for uh, uh, seniors or, or patients that need that. And I think that was that was part of the learning that we had when we were doing the work with the challenge sprint is I, recognizing that there is a need for permanent supportive housing in our communities, and yet there's the pipeline to get that is not there. And there needs to be work to build uh, more capacity in the community around permanent supportive housing. So um, part of the work that we're doing with the, the learning from the sprint that we did was as part, the next step for us is to convene city, county, and community partners to talk about what can we do from a systems level to ensure that these individuals have a place to go. And um, just sharing a story, we talked with a gentleman who was housed at the Second Henry, which is a transitional housing unit in Oakland. And I think what was compelling about his story, when we're thinking about people who are coming out of hospitals and have who have needs, um, particularly mental health needs or, or work dealing with substance use disorders, is uh, just uh, the need for a place for people to live and age with grace. And one of the things that he said, and it was, it was touching, and he um, had been unsheltered most of his life. He had a traumatic experience that um, caused him to um, become unsheltered. And he said, I just don't want to die alone. I just want to die in a place with um, around friends, around family, and a place that's safe and, and comforting. And I think um, what we learn internally in our system as a hospital, what the needs of our patients are, is informing how we're engaging in community to make sure that we can create safe, healthy places for people to age with grace and dignity. So it's it's great to hear all of these different efforts and the potential that they have, but it's interesting in reading some of the questions that I'm getting from people. I think we're very interested in this notion of radical transformation. <laughs> That's what's coming up right now. So questions like, how is it possible to create radical change for folks experiencing poverty within a system that has essentially created and still maintains homelessness. When we hear we have to do something radically different, what is that? We need a plan. So, Nita B, <laughs> what does that mean to you? What does radical transformation look like? I know one of the strategies you employ is direct action, but like, what would you say to that? Yes, um, so we use as many possible tactics as, as that we can get under our, our thumb. One of them is direct action. Um, and to talk a little bit about that, um, there are so many public lands that have been empty for decades in Oakland. And what um, the administration and the mayor has been doing and some of city council is selling them to private development. So the people of Oakland are losing our most precious resource, which is land. And um, in losing those resources, we're also not going to going to be building homes for the people who are being displaced. And many of us who started the village um, have been longtime activists and organizers um, dealing with a, a multitude of issues from police terror to tenants' rights to displacement to anti-gentrification work. And so we know that, that one of the radical transformations that need to happen is a political will of our elected officials and of appointed officials. And right now in Oakland, uh, within the administration and the mayor's office, there is zero political will in dealing with this um, housing crisis and in dealing with um, the homeless crisis. And you just have to look at the numbers to know that that's true. Um, between now and the next five to seven years, there's over 50,000 units of market rate or above market rate housing scheduled to be built. That is a commitment that the city has agreed upon, and most of those deals have come out of the mayor's office. There are just above 1,000 affordable units. 
So we have 50,000. We have more than 50,000 market rate and above market rate units. We have 1,000 affordable units. And again, affordable is middle class right now. And we have zero units to impact anybody who is being displaced or on the verge of being displaced. And that all comes down from political will. And so that transformation that needs to happen is that the minds need to change from the people who hold our resources, who hold our land and can actually use that land to develop for the people who are being displaced or use that land to build homes for people who don't even live here yet. And we know that the latter is what's happening. Um, So in line with the political, the direct action, which is what we take public land that is not being used, that has been empty, that has been filled with garbage, that has been filled with with trash, and we clean it up and we build emergency, temporary emergency housing, get people out of tents, get people off the grounds, get people behind locked doors, particularly for the most vulnerable women, children, elderly, disabled, who are at risk of being raped, who are at risk of being robbed. And so our direct action stuff is very, very immediate. What we do in conjunction with that is also policy change. So um, we were able last year to get in the city of Oakland the shelter crisis declaration implemented unanimously by city council. Um, unfortunately, they gave 100% of all authority of that to the administration. Um, and so we've seen zero units of any permanent housing built in the past year. Um, that shelter declaration is only a two-year declaration, but we can reinstate it um this October, we also um, were able to get city council to unanimously give the village um, public land and unanimously protect um, and legalize what we've done. But again, because it's the administration that is um, in charge of doing that, three of our villages have been thoroughly bulldozed and destructed. It has left 100 people that we were able to temporarily house right back in the street. All 100 people that we were able to give temporary emergency safe haven for, safe place for, have all been put out in the streets. Um, about 60 of them happened last week on Thursday and Friday. Um, homes were actually destroyed. Um, it was through the help of community members that we were able to save five of the houses, but um, several houses were destroyed. None of those people were housed. None of those people were given um, shelter. None of those people were allowed into a tough shed. In fact, some people who were let into the tough sheds were evicted the very next day with no grievance process, with no process of how to decide why they got pushed out. So there's this policy work that we're going to continue to engage in with the new City council members, um, we're working on three different bills that should um, be make it to city council in the next month that includes public land use, um, that includes uh, immediate development of permanent housing on public land, that includes no evictions on public land, that includes tiny homes. Um, so our mayor is totally opposed to tiny homes. And when we asked her point blank, why are you opposed to tiny homes? They're immediate. We can put them up really fast. And there, there are no codes in Oakland for tiny homes except for ADU, auxiliary dwelling units, which are like grandma, you know, backyard things, but tiny homes falls under that category. And there is no code for them. And the mayor literally told us that they're too permanent. And we said, but that's the solution. And she says, I'm not interested in building permanent homes. And we're like, well, then you're not interested in housing the working class of Oakland. And so we're actually getting legislation through city council to actually make permanent homes allowed. There is a group called YEP, the Youth Employment Partnership. They're an amazing organization, and they work with at-risk youth in East Oakland, and a majority of their youth are homeless. And they had, they built some of our homes for us, and so they took our, the youth took the blueprint that we were using for temporary housing, and they did something amazing with it, and they created this amazing blueprint for a tiny home. And they built 20 of them to house 20 homeless youth. Another organization that we're working in partnership with to buy land is the Oakland Community Land Trust, because trying to use public land is so difficult that we're having to move into the private sector as well. And they're absolutely in partnership with us. We're moving forward with them. But they bought a pot of land for YEP, donated that land to YEP to move 20 tiny homes to move in 20 homeless youth who are trying to get their life together. They're all students. They're all working. They don't have a home. Their classmates built them homes and the mayor's office stopped them and said it was not up to code. Mm -hmm. 
And so, again, it comes back to political will. What kind of radical thinking? If we are really in a crisis, if this, I keep on saying this, that if this was, you know, they say this is a housing crisis, this is a homeless crisis. If this was a fire, we would not be worrying about budgets. If this was an earthquake, they would not be worrying if you were building a home for your neighbor because your neighbor lost their housing in an earthquake. They would not be worrying about any of the stuff that they're worrying about. It would be immediate. And what we see happening is that there are community agencies, there are institutions in Oakland that have the political will, that have the resources, that have the man and woman power, that have the expertise, who are willing to do something about this and start housing people, and they are getting stopped by City Hall and by specific agents of City Hall. And so that is the transition that we need to see happen. Well, if anybody's wondering if you have a plan, I think you have <laughs> oh, a plan. And really quickly, too, we're also working on a state level. We're finding more support with the county, with the state, and with the federal government to make villages happen, to make the kind of permanent housing we need happening. And so we're working with legislation as well in those three arenas to actually just keep on pushing. And it's a slow, slow process. <laughs> and there will be more people unhoused before we're done. Well, and the city and the mayor aren't here to respond to what you're saying, Nita, but I think, I know, Tyrion, that you wanted to jump in here. I don't know, Tamika Moss, if you want to jump in as somebody who worked as the former chief of staff for the mayor um, not that long ago, but if you'd like to... um I want to just give you that opportunity, but otherwise I'll, I'll go to Tyrion. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't discount anything that you're saying. And I think that is certainly your perspective, um, which is critically important to the, to the discussion. I will say having worked for Mayor Schaff that, that as a Oaklander who cares very deeply about her community, she is absolutely recognizing that this is a crisis. So I hear you and I, I see that, but I just want to shout that out. I, I know her and I've worked for, with her around this issue. And so um, I think one of the things that I want to lift up to what you're saying is the political will is not just about the emergency response. The political will has to also be about the system reform that needs to make these things possible. When we talk about zoning, uh, which is a lot of what you're talking about, where can you actually put these homes? When you talk about what typology of housing, is it modular? Is it the tiny homes? Is it the, you know, temporary shelter navigation centers? I think we actually have to be much more open and and flexible about putting it all out there and bringing the partners, the assets, the community, the people who who are living the experience, but also the decision makers who are trying to balance the reality of there actually isn't that much public land that can be developed uh, at scale in Oakland, for example. But the school district owns land. The Caltrans owns land. I mean, there's many agencies, not just our city, but our county partners, right? Our state partners. And how do we bring all of them to to bring together our collective assets that we can all direct toward the problem? So I do think that, you know, when you think about who has the resources to, to address homelessness, acute homelessness, it actually is not city governments. It's county governments. Those counties are the ones that receive the funds to provide services and shelter to residents who are experiencing homelessness. So how do we get counties to play with cities? San Francisco is a city and county. They are very fortunate (laughs) in that way. But many other jurisdictions around our state are not that. And so there's a tug of war around resources all the time in terms of who gets priority. Is it young people? Is it families? Those are the hard choices that we make. When I advocate for families experiencing homelessness, I'm often... um, you know, confronted with, we have single adults who are in, there's a humanitarian (laughs) crisis on our streets. We are walking over human beings every single day. Families are less visible. They're high, they're in their cars. They're, they're intense. They're, they're sleeping on folks' couches, but both of those communities need support. So I want to get us out of the public policy debate of choosing who to prioritize when what we need is to radically reform the pie so that we can actually do what is needed as a civic society to take care of our people. Well said. Tyrion Steinbach. Amen. Thank you. Um, Sometimes I use the term radical uh, imagination (laughs) and I realize it either isn't radical or shouldn't be radical, right? So one, so a radical, uh, way of addressing this is, um, around homelessness as it exists right now, it 
would be radical if we just said we are not going to criminalize homelessness, that we will just not use criminal law, police power, that force against people experiencing homelessness. That does, that shouldn't be radical, that we would not use the power and force of the law in that way to people who are um, already physically in vulnerable situations being homeless. It should not be radical. And there are lots of ways that the cities in this area are trying to do that more and need to do a lot more. Just to totally think about all the ways that we criminalize poverty and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And yes, you have to go through and override or change some of the um, existing laws or just don't enact them. Don't actually enforce those laws Mm. that criminalize. The second really radical thing about people in homelessness right now is asking the people in homelessness who actually, as you just heard from Nita B, have like very comprehensive plans that are immediate and longer term and not impose solutions that come from policymakers who are totally disconnected from what's happening. And if we don't radically change the way we think about it, if we just think about homeless, the homeless, as some problem, some inconvenience, some reminder of suffering, I mean, that's at its heart, it's a reminder of suffering or something that you don't like, because I pay high taxes and I don't like seeing that. Mm -hmm. If that's how we think of people, people in homelessness, rather than people in homelessness, then we'll keep enacting policies that don't treat people as people. Mm-hmm. that doesn't treat this as your friends and neighbors because you wouldn't criminalize your friends and neighbors this way. And you would listen to them when they say, a tough shed is toxic, I don't want to sleep there. I have a dog and I have a partner and we can't go to the same shelter and I only feel safe when I'm with my partner. I'm scared because when I'm in a room with lots of people, my mental health is challenged by being that. Like my coworkers who have those issues, we address Because if people are homeless, we suddenly say, sorry, tough sheds are nothing. So those are radical, but they shouldn't be. And then, just real quick, when we talk about housing and housing affordability, people talk about the three Ps, and it's useful for a way of framing it. Because otherwise, these issues get too big and too conflated and too much. So we talk about protection, And I think of it as prevention, preventing people from being homeless in the first place. We talk about preservation, preserving existing stock and existing housing opportunities and affordability that exists now. And then we talk about production. And there is a radical way of looking at all three of these. And I know this because I worked for 17 years with radical lawyers and law students and social workers and development staff and finance staff who were like, we have to look radically at all three of those. So it shouldn't be radical, but is that keep Oakland house that says people just need lawyers. If 80% of landlords are represented and 80% of tenants are not, and we have studies that show if you're not represented by a lawyer in those cases, you have a 6% chance of prevailing. And if you are represented, it suddenly goes up to 65 to 80%. That's not, that is just radically ridiculous that that's a true system and that we don't say people need to be represented by counsel when they are at risk of losing their home and the home their children live in. Like that should just happen. So Keep Oakland House is funded a lot by private philanthropy. It should be funded by the cities and counties and state. Nancy Skinner has proposed a bill already called Keep Californians Housed. And the idea of that is to fund this on a statewide level. That needs to happen. So there's a lot to do in prevention that isn't really radical, but is because we're not doing it. Production, cooperative housing, land trusts, reclaiming of public land. We could look at that as those are criminals doing this criminal thing. Or we could say, oh, my God. How amazing that these folks, I mean, Nita B is the mother of invention that necessity produced, right? She is the mother of invention, right? We could be looking at that very differently and creating policies. And yes, we have to figure out where does the money come from. And yes, we have to think about the layers of state, federal, local laws and funding. But we are not putting our money where our mouth is about this at all. And we need to. And we have a government in California. So call your assembly people and senators and say there are at least five already housing bills on the docket for this year and support them for 
for production, for loosening of zoning, for representation for people facing eviction. You can talk to the people who get to make these decisions this year right now. And, and I would just, I would just yes, say, I Angela think that Jenkins. it's not as sexy, but I think that as a society, we haven't agree that housing, safe, affordable housing is a human right. That The rest of the have. world has. It's called the Declaration of Human Rights. <laughs> There's a Declaration of Human Rights, but we, we simply we just haven't 25. done that. <laughs> you know, we've actually um, dehumanized individuals that are unsheltered, and we have blamed them for their circumstance. And yeah. I think um, you said it well when we were talking about um, this panel, is this um, understanding how we got here today is a societal issue. It's not an individual issue. And beca- particularly because it's low-income people and people of color, it's easy to blame them for their circumstances and not understand that it's systemic racism. It's these historical policies that have contributed to factors that have created the homelessness that's ha- that we're experiencing in our community. And I think, you know, as a society, we just need to shift that thinking, shift paradigm shift, shift the way that we address it and con- quit blaming individuals for their circumstances and really looking at the system as a whole and trying to identify those solutions to eliminate homelessness and preventing it from happening in the first place. Well, we have about five minutes left of this conversation, and I I kind of want to end where we began. So Tamika Moss, when we sat down and started this conversation, you said this is a problem that we have been facing for a long time. Mm-hmm. How do you take that and not let it turn into, well, then this is an intractable problem. It's just too big. We cannot solve it. Or, you know, we can kind of nibble around the edges of it. I mean, how do we get beyond that as an excuse? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I hear you. Um, You know, I would first say that that homelessness is solvable. It, it is not that we don't understand how to do it. Uh, what Tyrion described is that the the things in which need to be done takes uh, a civic responsibility to do, and and that I think is the leap. Is really, and this isn't about altruism. You know, we I don't I don't run a, a direct service nonprofit. You know, uh, you, I want to be good with the you know my, my people, <laughs> but uh, you know it. There is a benefit because I truly believe that extremely low income people have a right to thrive in our community and capitalism doesn't foster that necessarily. So we have to be really right. I mean, there there is a distinct trajectory that extremely low income people are on by design. And so when you think about we can't solve it, it feels insurmountable because no one is willing to make the radical change and call truth and 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 call people to account for what has happened. I think we have violated the social contract in this country around equitable uh access to uh a thriving experience in the United States. And I know that that's a little bit esoteric, but I I do think that part of the challenge is if you think that the status quo is the baseline for normal, then that's what you're always going to play to. So until we change the status quo, the possibility that low-income people and people experiencing poverty in our communities is a condition that we created and we can get out of, then we're going to keep banging our head head up against the wall. So I would say there are many efforts like CASA here in the Bay Area that's looking at the three Ps, that's taking a radical position to say, you know what, we need all of these three Ps together to actually make a dent in our housing crisis. Those are the kinds of efforts that we need to escalate and frankly, hold everyone accountable for because it's easy to get wrapped up in your own experience and disassociate from what is happening in our communities. And then you look up and you'd be like, what? We still got a homeless problem? I, this is crazy. Um, when when you get your latte and you go to your beach house, you like, what? Those folks can't go. So we got to be much more uh, connective about the haves and have nots in our community. Yes. And I love how we're, we're thinking big, but you're bringing it down to the level of we have to confront ourselves. So give me one. So if people are on board and they're like, I'm totally with you, human right. I want to be part of this. What is one immediate small thing that you would recommend? 
I would say accessible thing. Yes. I would say in whatever conversations you have, wherever, whatever environment you are, help your, your neighbors, your friends say yes to housing. You cannot say no to housing in your neighborhood and then be mad when people are living on the street. We have to be able to build housing at all income levels, wherever we got land so we can solve the problem. Go to your public hearings, Talk to your neighbors and friends about saying yes to housing. Nita B, could I ask you if you have ever considered or thought about the possibility of leaving the city of Oakland? Of course. I have to consider that. Um, but I, it's not something that's realistic. I'm almost 50. I can't restart my whole life in a new city where I don't know anybody. Um, I have a business that's been here for almost 30 years and it's, I can't just pick up and start all over again like I did when I was 19 and I had all the energy in the world to start a new business. Um, that's grounded here. My daughter, she's grounded here. She was born and raised in Oakland. Um, her friends are here. She goes to, she's in two city colleges. She's 16, but she's in two city colleges. I don't, this, she, she doesn't want to leave Oakland. Um, we want to fight for our right to live where we choose to live. And so we're stuck in here to fight for just not us, but for the 14,000 other homeless folks of Oakland, California, who also should have the right to be able to live where they were born and raised and where they've chosen to live and not be pushed out because of a policy well, I think you have wrapped it up. Nita B, co-founder and lead organizer of Feed the People and the Village in Oakland. Next to her is Angela Jenkins, director of strategic initiatives at Kaiser Permanente. Tamika Moss, executive director and CEO of Hamilton Families. And Tyrion Steinbach, outgoing executive director of the East Bay Community Law Center, incoming chief program officer of the ACLU of Northern California. Thank you, all of you, for being here. I don't know if I have the gavel, but this program has been sponsored by the San Francisco Foundation and is part of the Foundation series focused on people, place, and power in the Bay Area. We also thank our audience here and on the radio, television, and the Internet. My name is Mina Kim, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you.